0: There are a lot of great athletic events this summer. Every week there's a good Braves game, there's NASCAR, there's Wimbledon going on right now. Last weekend was one of the great golf tournaments of the season, it's the U.S. Open. And Rory McIlroy had a great moment. When having lost one of the biggest leads at the first major of the year over in Athens, the Masters, to come storming back and not only win the second major of the year, the U.S. Open, but to set about ten all-time records in the process because he fought back. This morning we come to the book of 1 Corinthians and we see how the Apostle Paul fought back. He contended for the church in Corinth. This year, we're studying through the Bible one book each Sunday. This summer, we're studying the 11 letters of the Apostle Paul to different churches all around the Mediterranean. This morning, we come to the church in Corinth, Greece. Paul goes toe-to-toe to contend for the church in Corinth. Those of you that have families, or even those of you that are single people, we would encourage you to get this book, Reichen's Bible Handbook. It's available in the lobby for purchase when we're done in here. Most of us get a book to go through during the summer. Most of us want to educate our children and give them the best. This is one of the best books of its kind. It's consolidated. It's a great resource to use with your family to study the background, the setting for each of the books of the Bible. It's got about 12, 15 pages per book. For all 66 books of the Bible, it's a great resource uh, for your home, your study. Do I see the Kulabalis back here? The Kulabalis are here this morning. God bless you. Yes, Solomon and Evelyn and David. Talk about fighting back. How many days has David been in the hospital? Maybe it would be easier. How ma- Two months in the hospital. This is his first day back in church in many months. David, we welcome you this morning. God bless you. Praise God. Amen. Talk about what's worth fighting for. We contested in prayer for David's life. And we stood with the Koulibaly family through some very difficult times as his kidney uh, was not functioning properly. Various infections came against his body. And uh, the Emory University hospital system did everything that they could. But we as his church family rallied their life group has been leading us as a congregation and caring for them and praying for them. And we just celebrate this morning with you to welcome you back. We're most grateful. We contend for life. We contend for what is of value. And the Apostle Paul was one who contended for the life of the church in Corinth. Corinth was a city built by Rome in Greece. About 53 B.C., The Romans built an amazing world-class city. It's kind of like a combination between New York City, Los Angeles, and Las Vegas all put together. They had entertainment, they had money, they had industry, they had communication. It was a crossroads of Roman roads for all of the Mediterranean basin. All around the Mediterranean, they would, all roads led there. The Apostle Paul was a church planter. He wanted to take the Gospel of Jesus Christ from Jerusalem into all the world. That was his assignment. He knew if he was going to do that, Corinth, Greece, was critical. He planted a church there. He stayed there longer than usual. More than a year he spent leading people to faith in Jesus Christ, making disciples in the city of Corinth. But when he left... The church faced many, many issues. And now Paul is contending against the inroads of various enemies that is coming against the church in Corinth. We want to get our arms around the book of Corinth as we do each of the books of the Bible as we work our way through. And the book of First Corinthians, it has about nine verses of introduction. Because it's a letter. In the old days, when we used to write handwritten letters, in the old days, we'd write, dear so-and-so, or my greetings to you, my friend so-and-so. Well, now we just write, um, Fred, and sign your name. It's, it's you just very cryptic electronically. Well, back then, this was the age where letter writing was just taking off. Never before in history did anyone write letters because there were no roads to get from one city to another. The Romans built those roads, and with the roads came letter writing. So letter writing is just starting. And back when letter writing began, there would be long introductions. And there's like nine sentences of introduction of Paul introducing himself again to this church and Christians that he led to faith in Christ there in Corinth. From there, Paul contends for four critical issues. First, he he contends for unity, chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4. Then he contends for purity, chapters 5 and 6. Then he contends for vitality, chapters 7 through 14. And chapter 15, he contends for doctrinal purity or for theology. For believing the right stuff. And then the last chapter, chapter 16, are all personal words. Uh, Say hi to the, the folks over here. Greet the church that meets in this home over here. And giving all these personal greetings. Let's just take a look at this. Chapter 1, verse 10 Paul is contending for unity. Unity is no side issue. It's no secondary matter for the church of Jesus Christ. Unity is critical. And Paul says this, I appeal to you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another, so that there may be no division among you, that you may be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers, some of you in Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. Now, if you brought your Bible today and you don't mind writing in it, I would encourage you to circle two words. In verse 10, circle the word division. In verse 11, circle the word quarrel. They may sound like the same words, but they're not. The word division... Refers to a hairline fracture. The word quarrel in verse 11 refers to really a whole, uh, earthquake, a separation. If you fracture a bone, the bone is intact. It just has a hairline fracture. It can heal in weeks, sometimes four or five weeks. But if you break a bone and there's actual separation in the bone, it will take three or four months to heal. That's the difference between these two words. What Paul is saying here is, there should not even be a hairline fracture, but in fact, you actually have a whole earthquake of separation that has taken place in the church. And to contend with this, Paul points them back to the basics of faith in Jesus Christ. In one God, three persons. And the reason why unity in the church is so critical is because there is nothing on earth that paints a better picture of the one true God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, as the unity in the church. For us as a congregation here in Northeast Atlanta, to love one another across racial lines, language lines, cultural differences, across generational lines, is, is a miracle taking place right here in Northeast Atlanta. USA Today says we are the most multicultural, suburban community on earth. The corridor of Northeast 85 leaving Atlanta. We're we're right in the middle of that. We're the most multicultural suburban community on earth, and God has positioned our church here to show that we as one people, as one congregation, we have 50 different nationalities represented in our one congregation. And that is a miracle. And it testifies to the fact that we can be united on earth contending for our community under the cause of Jesus Christ because there is one God, three persons in heaven. And we reflect on earth the unity that God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have in heaven. This is a miracle. And that's why Paul contended for the unity of the church in Corinth. There cannot be divisions because the divisions in the church will be a discredit to the one true God in heaven. One of the last prayers Jesus prayed before He died and was raised from the dead, Jesus prayed in the upper room with His disciples. He prayed, God, make them one, even as You, Father, and I are one. May they be one, and not only them, but those who will believe in Me through their witness." He was even praying for us here in northeast Atlanta that we might have a unity of heart because we so value Jesus that whatever other differences we have, whether we're Democrat or Republican, richer or poorer, those things are not going to divide us. What's important is that we have our faith in Jesus Christ. Paul contended for community in the church in Corinth. The second thing he contended for was for this whole matter of purity. Verses are chapter 5 and 6. He deals with a specific example of moral impurity. And what he's saying here is, while others may experiment sexually, That is not to be done by a follower of Jesus Christ. We march to the beat of a different drum. We are not to blend in with everyone else in society. Hollywood may do it. Others may do it. But it's not right for the people of God. We have a standard. In fact, Paul says... You in the church, you've confronted this individual personally. You've taken two people with you. That person still has not confessed their sins and repented. Now you need to remove them from the fellowship for the sake of purity. Moral purity is not a peripheral issue for the church of Jesus Christ. Chapter 6 goes on and very explicitly says, That the body, the physical body is not irrelevant. The physical body is very important. The Greek world separated the physical from the spiritual. And they taught that what's done in the body didn't matter. That all that matters is if you thought things properly, you can do whatever you want in the body. That is not Christian. Christianity teaches that there is a Value to the body and that we are one person spirit soul and body and what we do in the body matters as much as what we do in the mind or with our emotions that God died on the cross in Jesus Christ to redeem us spirit soul and body and that the body is actually now the temple of the Holy Spirit and he says here that when Jesus died on the cross he died to purchase He paid a price for this body. And that what we do in the body is of value to God and is to reflect the fact that Christ's body died and was raised and today our physical body is to glorify God as well. A powerful teaching here on moral purity and on the importance of preserving morality for the well-being of a community. Paul is contending for moral purity. Then we come to chapter 7, and he's contending for vitality. But you'll notice something in verse 1 of chapter 7. He says, now, for the matters that you wrote about. Up until now, Paul has dealt with two issues. Unity and purity that were of concern to him. Now he's moving his focus to two other matters that were of concern to them. Matters of vitality and matters of theology. The first, the matters of vitality. He talks here about marriage. Chapter 8, about food offered to idols. 9, about apostles. Chapter 11, about the Lord's Supper and worship. Chapters 12 and 14, about how church is to be conducted and about the various gifts of the Holy Spirit. And then right in the middle of this teaching about worship and the vitality of the church health, we find the words that are the most frequently... Quoted words at any wedding. 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am only like sounding gong or clanging cymbal. If I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have and surrender my body to the flames but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. And it goes through this magnificent description of love which is the heartbeat of the vitality of the church. And what we find here is while contending for these matters that matter, For the health of a community, for the health of the people of God, for the church in Corinth, Paul writes the most practical teaching of all the letters that he wrote on the health and how to maintain the health of a local church family. And then we come to the last section, chapter 15, on theology. He comes back to the basics of the gospel. And he says, now I want to remind you of the gospel that I preached to you when I started the church there in Corinth. Verse 3, for this reason I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried and raised, that on the third day He rose according to the Scriptures and appeared to Peter, the twelve, five hundred, James, the apostles, and also to me. Now if you look at 1 Corinthians, chapter 1, Paul brings them back to the crucifixion of Christ and elevates the importance of the cross of Jesus Christ. At the end of this letter, chapter 15, he points them to the resurrection and the importance of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now just as unity is no peripheral issue, neither is theology what we believe about God is of utmost importance. In our community, there are many different faiths, but it's important that we recognize that there is but one true God who had but one true Son, Jesus, who was the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed of God, who died on the cross and rose from the dead and is today Lord of lords and King of kings. And who is coming back again, as it says toward the end of 1 Corinthians 15, at the sound of the trumpet, at the twinkling of an eye, Jesus is going to come. And every eye will see Him. No, Paul here is contending for the faith. Now, every book of the Bible that we're studying this year, we recognize who is Jesus Christ in this book. And there are many great descriptions of Christ. Chapter 1 calls Him the wisdom of God, who's been made to us sanctification and redemption and justification. Chapter 5 calls Him the Passover Lamb. The One who fulfilled the Passover of Israel and who died as the final Passover Lamb. But in chapter 15, I want to point you to two phrases that appear nowhere else in the Bible that define who Jesus Christ is. Verse 45 uses the term last Adam. And verse 47 Uses the term second man. Verse 45 calls him the last Adam. Now, Adam as in Adam and Eve. Not in electrons, neutrons, protons. Okay? Now, just follow this. For Jesus to be the last Adam. Follow this. The first Adam was... Man. Not God. The last Adam was man and God. The first Adam began a human race and passed on his DNA to everyone in that human race. A DNA that was creating a downward spiral of our twisted humanity and sin and self-destruction. Jesus Christ came to be the last Adam. To put an end to the downward spiral of self-destructive humanity. Isn't that awesome? The last Adam. And, verse 47, the second man. Now follow this. There have been millions of men from Adam until Jesus, but Jesus is called the second man. Why? Because the first man began a human race. The second man, Jesus, began a new lineage. The first man and his son and grandson and great-grandson, they were all alike. The next million men that were born were just like the first man, so there was no need to number them because they were all numbered in the first man. But when Jesus came, He was born of a virgin. He did not have the baggage of every other man. Like the first man, He was a unique creation. He was the first of a whole new lineage. The second man. And that spells redemption for you and I. There is a last Adam, Jesus. And there is a second man, Jesus. And those two names give you and I all the hope we need to live by. Next week, when we look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, we're going to see if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, all things become new. And that's only possible because Jesus Is the last Adam and the second man. In the middle of all of this, and believe it or not, I'm almost done. You guys who are caring for the children, you're doing great. I'm cheering for you. I'm cheering for you. Hang on. Right in the middle of this book, Paul, it's like he takes off his jacket, if you don't mind, and he gets very personal. He gets vulnerable and he shares with these people who he loves, who he's now contending for. He shares with them the struggle. Chapter 9, let's look at it together. The last paragraph of chapter 9, beginning with verse 24. Do you not know that in a race, all runners run, but only one gets the prize? Now remember, Paul is talking to those Christians in Greece. Does anyone know about a great world athletic event that takes place every few years that began in Greece? Oh, the Olympics! He's writing to where the Olympics began. These are a bunch of Olympians. If anybody knew how to run a race, how to wrestle, how to throw the discus and javelin, it was the Greeks. He's talking to the Greeks using a form that they knew very well. That is athletics. And he says, and he's using terminology they would all understand. Don't you know that in a race, all runners run, but only one gets the prize? Then he says to the church in Corinth, run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. Now, what is it that Paul is exhorting the church to contend for? Go back a couple of verses to verse 22 and 23. Verse 22, To the weak I became weak, to win the weak. I become all things to all men, so that by all possible means I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the Gospel that I might share in its blessings. What is he contending for? He's contending for the souls of the people in the community of Corinth. He's fighting. He's doing everything he can to win souls to faith in Jesus Christ. And what he's saying here is, I don't want to be sloppy in my approach to winning the lost in Corinth. I want to win the nations. And I'm going to do it just as an athlete runs to win, I want to run to win. Just as an athlete goes into strict training, I go into strict training. Just as an athlete competes to win a temporal prize, I fight and contend to win a lasting crown. They do it for the applause of people, but I do it for the applause of God. And so he says, therefore, I do not run like a man running aimlessly. I do not fight like a man beating the air. No, I beat my body. I make it my slave so that having preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified from the prize. Brothers and sisters, let me just talk to us for a moment. Christianity in North Atlanta has become so sloppy. We have been so mesmerized by so much grace theology that we think if God is in it, it's going to be easy. I just sit back and let it happen. Brothers and sisters, we need to get the fight back that Paul had when he was contending for the Christians in Corinth. It was grace that was motivating him, but it was not a cakewalk. He was fighting. He was contending. And you know what the Lord said to me? Go ahead and get dragged across the floor by a bunch of four-year-olds if that's what it takes to win four-year-olds. Go ahead and dye your hair pink if that's what it takes to do whatever you do, Susanna. You know, I've been here 23 years. And a month ago, God rebuked me. Fred, you're getting soft. Fred, I don't want you getting soft. I want you contending for what's important in northeast Atlanta with greater focus than you ever have. You remember King David got himself in trouble when he laid back on the rooftop when the other kings went off to war. Because he thought, I've been at this long enough. I put in my time. Now it's time to take it easy. Let me tell you, we in northeast Atlanta have a lot of comfort desires. We like life comfortable. But that is not good theology. In a land that enjoys comfort, God still calls for our best effort. And you know what? I'm here to say I enlist myself again to contend for unity in the fellowship, to contend for purity, to contend for vitality, to to contend for true Orthodox theology, and we do that best when we serve children and youth. There's no ministry in the church that requires more energy, more time, and more money than children's ministry and youth ministry. But we as a church believe in reaching the nations and the next generation. And brothers and sisters, I call us and I enlist myself among us to give our best, to give our all, to fight to win, to run to win the next generation. We're not going to back up. We're not going to go easier. We want to give it everything we have to contend for the health of our community and of our future as we serve these children. Even when they get loud and run around, and don't pay any attention to the guy up front who's doing his best to communicate. It's all good! Because we love you guys! We love you guys. No, at the end of this passage, with as much comeback fight as Rory McIlroy, who came back from blowing the biggest lead in a major history, to setting all kinds of records in the next major golf tournament this season. We, as a church, want to come roaring back. And Paul said to the church in Corinth, it's time to come roaring back. And he said in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, Therefore, dear brothers, stand firm. This is wrestling terminology. Wrestling today, you have to get a guy on his back and hold his shoulders to the mat for three seconds. In the Roman Greek world, all they had to do was get them anywhere on the mat. Knee down, shoulder down, hand down. If you went down at all, that was a point. And you got enough points and you lost. That's why Paul says, we are in a wrestling match. Stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord. Because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Hallelujah. No more than Serena Williams or Jeff Gordon or Rory McElroy. We're contending for something that really matters. And God's holding us accountable to give it our best, to give ourselves fully to the work of the Lord here in our community to serve the health and well-being of the next generation. Amen?